This is Namina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health, addictions, and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guests' opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. And at Nomina, we work with complex, treatment-resistant mental health and addictions, so we know the importance of making exceptional mental health accessible to everyone. And with that, our special guest today is Jenny Okolo, who is an expert in working with neurodivergent prisoners. So she's here to talk to us about working with neurodiversity in the correction system. Let's welcome Jenny. We're going to be talking about the empathetic approach to working with people that uh, are neurodivergent. So maybe you can just start with an introduction of yourself and your practice. Hi everyone, I'm Jenny Okolo. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. I specialize specifically in mental health um, and um, those who are in forensic settings or have forensic backgrounds, meaning that they have um, some sort of criminal history. Um, And that can range from more petty crimes to more serious crimes. Um, I have worked in um, different levels of secure hospitals. In the UK, that just means, again, um, placing people who have mental health needs into um, hospitals that deal specifically with the risk associated with certain criminal um, activity. Um, And then I've also worked in a prison where I am currently as well supporting those who, yes, go through the criminal justice system, but have been identified to have um, some sort of mental health condition or a neurodevelopmental health um, condition as well, aka uh, neurodiversity, um, and supporting those who might have like, you know, autism, learning difficulties, and they also come through our sort of pipeline in terms of um, those who are vulnerable, um, not just to society, but also to themselves. Um, now, I know a lot of our viewers are probably already aware of neurodivergence, but maybe you can just give us a brief example or a brief explanation of it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I tend to, you know, go with the word um, neurodevelopmental dis- uh, disorder or condition. Um, and I guess because I'm coming from a more clinical point of view, um, where we treat um, those who have uh, neurodiversity or neurodevelopmental disorder as something that is clinical, just as you would, um, you know, a physical health condition. And um, that can encompass um, ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder, um, learning difficulties or learning disabilities. um, And that could just range from people who have problems processing information, um, problems interacting with society, um, learning certain social cues, so it's, it's, there's a wide range um, of traits that can fall under that spectrum. Um, and that's why it is quite a difficult um, condition um, to identify and to diagnose because of how broad it is. Um, somebody could be on the lower end or the higher end of the spectrum, so, meaning that they could be lower functioning or higher functioning. And especially those who are higher functioning, it's, um, it can sometimes be missed um, if they don't sort of, um, if they're still able to function in life, um, and, and that might mean masking some of their symptoms in order to fit in with society. Um, and then, you know, you on the other end, you might get somebody who is really struggling, but um, again, it doesn't get picked up as a um, 
neurodevelopmental condition, but it gets picked up as maybe somebody who's very aggressive or somebody who's lazy. Um, so it's definitely, you know, over the years, it's gotten better in terms of, you know, we've got specialist um, clinicians who can identify by doing the correct initial assessments. Um, but there is still um, this m- notion of just labeling somebody as a particular way of presenting when in actual fact it could be something else and um you know what's what I'm seeing now anyway is that that's being explored further yeah I worked with a gentleman who um he was on the spectrum for autism but very high functioning so I went and did a lot of research well how can I support him in his job and it turns out a lot of it that's not how he wanted to be supportive. That's not what worked best for him. So it was a real learning curve for us to work together in how can I support him the best and and what are his challenges and his struggles. And Absolutely. And, and I think that's the beauty of having clinicians and, you know, people in different specialities, because as an occupational therapist, which in the criminal justice system, um, slash a forensic mental health set- setting is still quite new. You usually sort of hear about psychiatrists, so um, psychologists, nurses. Um, but for us, our role isn't necessarily to um, treat them with medication. It's um, therapy in the form of occupation. Um, so, you know, I always say that, you know, everybody has an occupation, whether it's good or bad. Um, and an occupation can be something that can help you in terms of your own personal well-being whether that's taking up a hobby whether that's you know going to work having a routine so with the clients that I work with um, we work on you know teaching them new skills such as maybe cooking for example or um, getting involved in creative arts anything to support them in you know going you know being as independent as possible learning those skills um, and, and oftentimes, and I don't know if that's the same if other occupational therapists might relate, you see us maybe playing games with somebody or like I already mentioned, cooking. And it seems like, oh, that's such a fun activity. They're just playing. But no, actually, we are assessing their cognitive function. Are they able to follow instructions? Are they able to concentrate? So we do we do our therapy in a way that suits that person and their needs whilst also making our own clinical observations so it's it's like you said you know everyone's different everyone sort of um you know receives um things in a different way so why not have different therapists that can provide an alternative approach um it might not work for everyone but definitely um you know, where I work at the moment, it's, it's proven to be very effective. Um, and I, you know, I always like to say that, you know, you've had bad occupations, so let's turn this into a good occupation. What are some of your best tips then for therapists working with neurodiverse clients? I think it's be open-minded because I've, I've made that mistake where I've, you know, you, you get trained in these stuff and, you know, everything is quite clinical textbook material but I found that being open in when I approach my clients and especially during the initial assessment um, stages it's just seeing what the person likes seeing what they don't like learn a bit more about them rather than just reading their case notes Um, and I feel like that's helped me a lot in you know understanding that person but also feeling that 
and also um, the client feeling that they are heard um, because oftentimes they know that there's been notes written about them. So it, it almost feels like the stacks are up against them already. Um, but, you know, I, I come in with, a, like I said, open approach. I It's, it's more of a, a chance for them to tell me what's what's happening. And then I'm also able to assess that during our um on our sessions um but then I I think as well it's it's tricky because where I'm currently working um it's not just being neurodivergent it's also being in a setting that doesn't really suit their needs in the prison for example so um I'm now able to sort of look at what their needs are just generally as a neurodivergent person but then also how does you know, how does this impact them being in this particular setting? So being able to empathize with um, their needs and their struggles and liaising with, you know, different team members to see how we can make, you know, not necessarily their experience, but whilst they are here, how we can support them as much as we can. Um, Because unfortunately, depending on, you know, what kind of condition they have, um, not everybody's able to express their needs in I suppose the same way as you would um you know from somebody who doesn't have any sort of issues or anything like that so um it's been very interesting working with this sort of client group I do absolutely love it because again it opens your your mind and perspective to how other people think and it doesn't always mean that you know they're wrong or that we're right I'm not trying to you know sort of say the way you're thinking is absolutely wrong but it's just how can we keep you safe how can we you know support you in um you know being as independent as possible with the resources that you have um so that when you are out in society again you can live life to you know your your fullest um so that's currently you know my approach to to that you do have to integrate back into society and people can change. And one of our big missions here at Nomina is to fight that stigma that there are tools. We can, we can learn different ways of doing things. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. I remember like, you know, when I first started, I'm these crazy ideas and it was my first time sort of going into a prison sort of setting. And, you know, as you probably would imagine it, it's just dull colors very gray I remember going into the um, the day center that I was supposed to be managing um to provide a program of activities and it was just so derelict it's like nobody has opened a door in like I don't know 20 odd years so I went in there I had all these great ideas I ordered loads of furniture in different colors literally it was like a splash of rainbow and as our clients started coming in for the different activities, we had creative space. We had um, like a mini horticulture, so like um, growing plants and things like that in there. And I remember like our governors of the prison would come in and they'd be like, wow, this is so different. It's like a different world, but it's in the prison. Um, and even like our, you know, our clients as well, they would have such a different demeanor about them. And again, it's like, it's making a, making it a therapeutic space because as much as yes we're dealing with people who have committed crimes for whatever reason it might be um, whether that's to do with you know psychology um sociology we, you know you don't know the fact is that they've come to us because they have some sort of condition and they need to be treated how do you treat somebody 
in an environment that's just detrimental to their mental health. So that's what I found. So I think it depends on how you look at it as well, but especially as a clinician who's, um, you know, working with people who might have, you know, like sensory needs, we were able to create a sensory room um, for our client group. So I think you definitely have to be very creative um, in whichever setting that you're in. Even when I was working in the community, depending on your client group, you've got to try and adapt as much as possible that's within our, um, I guess, professional limits. Um, but it's it's definitely been a challenging, uh, but yet, you know, very sort of creative and, and you know, great learning process for me. Hmm. I'm curious, have you met with any kickback from any of the uh, corrections officers? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I wasn't surprised if I'm honest with you, because I, I you know, at the end of the day, they're officers, um, we'll call them officers here. Um, so they're prison staff. So they're not, their training and their approach to this particular client group is going to be completely different for the most part. Um, they are here to, you know, sort of watch over them, ensure that they are um, sticking to the regime of the prison, do your time, basically. My approach is not that. My approach is you treat them um, or you try and support them as much as you can, um, depending on what conditions are, you know, are presented to you. So definitely I've had kickback. Um, even from as much as, you know, this person is going to have a therapy program and it's like, yeah, but this person was um, also the other day he was fighting or he's been shouting and screaming. And, you know, Ben, I think when it comes to that point, I don't necessarily fight back with, you know, the same hostility, but I sort of fight back with allowing them giving them a space to try and come into my world. So I'm like, okay, the reason why this person is, I don't know, shouting is because, you know, it's it's very loud in here. Um, You know, the the sensory, the the noises are are way too much. Is there any way we can move him to the other end of the wing so that he doesn't sort of hear as much noise? So it's sort of explaining it to them in those layman terms. Um, I think really helps and also we provide training I think is really important whatever field you're in like if you're working with people who are non-health professionals it's always good to sort of share that learning as well um, so that they can again understand why you are doing certain things why this person has to go to therapy why um, you know we are fighting to change their regime you know as much as we can Um, and then there's been other days you know where we've had to accept that this is a restrictive environment and just work with what we have. So if I'm not able to get a service user to come up to the day center, I might then go down to their cell on the wing and um, do some sort of activity through the hatch. So they have like these window hatches and or provide them with some activity packs. Um, Right now, what's really hot is like these squishy stress balls that I have, um, which they love. And I, didn't think that they would like it that much but I'm getting so many people requesting for that or like we create these sensory packs with like sensory oils um which can be used to calm um, people down because again I don't know how it is in Canada but uh, for the most part here 
um, a lot of the prisoners are in their cell 23 hours a day. So with very limited time to sort of come out for association. So again, it's if we can't, for whatever reason, push back against a regime, then we will try within our means to, you know, be as creative as possible again in, in a restrictive environment like that. I think that's fantastic because I don't understand how we can just lock people away in an environment that's toxic and expect them to come out and integrate into society without learning some of these, these, you know, basic tools, self-soothing and, and yeah, yeah. it's, it's really, it's really difficult and it's sad because that then leads to that never ending cycle of reoffending. I mean, for the most part, you get released, you don't have no money, um, you don't have no job, and what are you going to do? You're going to steal it, steal again, or do whatever crime that will end you back in prison. So it's tricky, but, you know, I will say that, um, you know, we, we've just appointed a new um, neurodiversity lead. So again, I think because of the information shared between clinicians and um, the, the prison staff, they're now able to understand that there is a dire need for um, a neurodiversity lead of some sort to support them because they understand that they can't just they can't just you know do things ha- how they were before because the client group they can't they can't handle it. There's certain behaviors and there's certain um, things that they just don't know about. And I think in order to sort of support the the mental health and well being of the people that they are um, sort of overseeing, that like, there is a duty of care at the end of the day. Um, I think, you know, that's been a positive outcome in terms of seeing what the need is and working alongside the um, clinical team to um, support their service users. I think one of the things that we're missing here in, in Canada is the compassion piece, the like, well, I've, I've shared on this channel before that I lost my oldest daughter. She was killed by a young man and he's now serving 35 years. And my family was horrified when I passed him a piece of paper at the sentencing for a man who could help him, who, who I knew he, you know, he was addicted and I knew this other guy that had found recovery in prison and they were horrified. Why would I help him? But I, I understand that you know, we're all dealt these cards when, when we're born or how we're raised and, and our brain chemistry and, and, you know, nature, nurture, all of that plays into it. Absolutely. And I do get asked a lot of the time, why, why the hell would you want to work in a prison? Why the hell would you want to support these people who've committed such horrendous crimes? And I, I think where it changed for me, like how I even got into, um, working in criminal justice settings or those who have forensic backgrounds was um during my placement this was during uh, my training that was, was my final placement I was sent to a um, high secure psychiatric hospital um it's quite popular in the UK it's called Broadmoor Hospital um but because of how the media is portrayed it some people might think it's a prison it's had some really high profile people in there and I remember how daunting it was sort of walking through those massive gates, going through security, patting you down and everything. And as soon as I stepped onto the other side, I went into like the clinical spaces and the recovery college. I thought, this is like a different world. 
And as I sort of started to learn more about the cases, even the high profile ones, and this is not to say everybody's situation is the same, but I'm just sort of explaining where my compassion came from. You know, I started to understand and hear about the stories, the trials and tribulations of some of these individuals, some of the abuse, some of the um, neurodevelopmental disorders that have not been um, diagnosed at earlier stages, some of the mental health conditions that had been suppressed because they were really trying hard to fit in with society for for whatever reason, um, you know, something was triggered that sort of led them here. So for a long time, um, prior to that, you know, I had this perception, just like because of what the media had portrayed, that these people deserve to be in prison, they don't deserve to be treated, all that kind of stuff. Until I went into that psychiatric hospital, until I, you know, again, even coming into prison, hearing about the stories and hearing that the story isn't even finished for a lot of them. Even once they are released, they've got to go back to what even led them here. So. And I always say it's not I'm not creating an ex- excuse for um, criminal behavior, um, especially when the person has the capacity to understand what is right and what is wrong. But I think that there has to be and it's really important to at least a be empathetic to to the point of wanting to understand what led to that moment. What, what, what caused that person to go down this path? Because if not, for me personally, I don't think we'll be able to end the cycle of crime because it's going to keep on happening because we're missing that. We're missing that key, those key puzzles. We're missing the, oh, you know, especially um, black and ethnic minority people who are least likely to be diagnosed at earlier stages. By the time you're 25, your brain's fully developed. And what, at 45, now you're diagnosed with ASD or, or whatever? It's really hard to reverse that cycle. So I think, again, you know, like I'm not sort of um, disputing the fact that certain crimes, that there has to be consequences. But at the same time, we have to look at it from a different lens now um, and also try and empathize with the journey. And like I said, how somebody got to this point so that we can pinpoint the areas that need to be sort of closed up and need to be resolved. Um, but I, I always bear in mind, like when I when I go into work, my hat is as a clinician. I I yes, there are going to be some cases that can invoke some emotion, and you know, you sort of feel like, oh gosh, this is this is really bad, or you know, whatever it is. Um, but the people that I work with, I look at it like this is a condition that they have. It could be like somebody breaking an arm, or you know, it's got to be treated. And for the most part, when those people are on the right medication, on the right treatment, in terms of therapy, you can see the change. You can see the change. So um, I think in that respect, like I always sort of, you know, urge people to have empathy. It's not to say that they need to, again, agree, disagree with what's been done, but just see this as something that's a condition, is a clinical condition. Um, especially with neurodiversity, that is, it's, you know, the changes in the brains, it's not the same as a quote unquote normal brain. Um, um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of my stance on that and why I'm able to still work in this type of field. Well, and I think the return on investment 
would be there as well, that if you're investing in a program for the, this occupational therapy and the amount of inmates that you can help to integrate back into society and become productive members, that saves us in the long run yeah. in terms of those costs of reincarceration. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it's not to knock down, you know, medication, but medication can only do so much. If you can, if you can combine that or better sort of move away from medication where they're able to learn those skills um, that they've learned in, in, in therapy and utilize that in their everyday lives, I think, you know, we can definitely move forward in, in terms of how we rehabilitate um, our service users. And again, I always say everything that we do is, is an occupation. Committing crime is an occupation. And my role is to turn that occupation. So I, I talk about a, um, I always talk about this story. I worked with a service user who, super intelligent. I mean, super intelligent. But his crime was he, you know, he hacked into air control, grounded an airplane by announcing a bomb hoax. This is how intelligent this person was and was sent to prison, right? And I always say that, okay, the crime was horrendous. I get it. It was, it was so bad. Those skills, those are real world tech skills. So if we could turn those skills into, I don't know, becoming a, I don't know, what can you say, like an an analyst or an app developer, for example, like the amount of, like what what we could do with such potential is just, it's it's amazing if we can just shift that away from the crime. A lot of these um, quote-unquote criminals that we work with that have some sort of like neurodivergent condition who are maybe higher functioning, um, I always like to say like it's not, their lives aren't necessarily over. We can definitely utilize, um, or they can utilize their skills to become a better version of themselves, but in a legal and better way. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely very, very interesting. And even the cases that I come across and I'm like, wow, this was very bad, but this was almost genius in a sense. Um, so, I, you know, I, my approach is very optimistic um they definitely you know at my workplace see me as the person who likes to sort of see all the rainbows and everything but it's because I have so much belief that you know this person can change or at least turn their lives around for the better and but that also has to come from from them as well being you know wanting to engage in these activities and sometimes it can be difficult sometimes you know we do get met by um, resistance and oh no I'm not doing therapy and it's like it's not for me um, and it's not for everyone and I always say like you know you you normally hear about when people go to therapy you hear about the usual like maybe CBT and things like that but there are different types of therapists we've got art therapists speech and language we've got OTs like me we've got music therapists um, and it just depends on what works for you that's why we do this channel is to promote all of the different options out there because not one size fits all. Absolutely. We're actually in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a video with a fellow on um, purpose driven employment and how important that is part of our mental health and addiction recovery that finding purpose in our work 
can really help us along that mental health and addiction journey. Mm, that's amazing. Um, you know, I, I, I love that. I think even for me, like my purpose and what keeps me going is that curiosity, you know, what keeps me going is yes, I'm get, I get presented a case, but I want to find out more. I want to, you know, I'm curious. I'm trying to put the, the pieces together to this puzzle, trying to understand again, how did this person get to this point? What, what was their journey like? Um, and that gives me sort of purpose and in what I do as a clinician, how I approach, you know, my work and things like that. So I think that's a, that's an amazing conversation. Um, and I, to be honest, I, I can't wait to, to see that. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I mean, obviously it strikes close to home for me, but um, yeah, no, it was wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. No, I've, I've definitely really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, you can probably tell I'm really passionate about this area. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and uh, you know, I just hope that at least at the end of it, people can see that health professionals, clinicians and the criminal justice system, they can sort of work together and um yes it's a it's a place where it's for you know consequences punishment but uh, we really need to look at the type of client groups that we have and the reasons why that they're here and to have a bit more empathy in terms of you know trying to understand what 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 the hell happened um, and i think that will be um the first and major step in trying to resolve and end the cycle definitely well you said it is how did they get here 